we'll be looking at verses 42 through verses 47. Once you have that in your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word. There we find these words written. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and ha having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to that number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, asking you for mercy and aid this evening. Lord, I desperately need your help to communicate your word to your people. Pray that you would grant me that help through the aid of your Holy Spirit. Do pray, Father, that if there's anything that might stand between me and you being a, a vessel, a tool in your hands to bring you glory and honor this evening, would you move it out of the way? Would you pardon it because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us? Would you do the same for those who are the listeners tonight? Lord, we pray that you would grace us as you move in our hearts and minds as we think about what your word says to us. We pray that you are honored, you are lifted up. We thank you for this joy of being able to have this time together. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us to be edified by the preaching of your word, the teaching of your word in this assembling, this congregation called Living Water Community Church. We want you to be honored in every way. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. It was after Christmas Eve or Christmas services that Jim was leaving church when the pastor decided to encourage him on the way out. The pastor caught up with Jim and stopped by, and because he hadn't seen Jim in a while, he said to Jim, Jim, it's time that you join the army of the Lord. We need to see you more often at church. We need to see you every Sunday if possible. Jim, in response to what the pastor's encouragement was, Jim simply said to him, I'm already in the army of the Lord. And the pastor said, if that's the case, then why do we only seem to see you at Christmas and Easter. Jim quietly looked around, leaned over to the, pastor, to the pastor, and whispered, that's because I'm in the secret service. <laughs> By his response, I'm not sure that Jim really understands what church really means. Our hope over the next five weeks or so is to talk about, as you saw on the opening slide, what church really means. 
Today, we're going to focus on one simple question, what is the church? And in the following weeks, the upcoming weeks that will follow this week, we'll try to cover four main aspects that the church does when it gathers together. We will use what is known as, or I learned in seminary, is called the, the WIFE model. And the WIFE model is an acronym for some major things. W stands for worship. The I is for instruction. The F is for fellowship. And the E is for expression, and thus the WIFE model. And so each week coming up, we'll cover one of those letters uh, as we talk about what the church does. So this evening, I want to start off by just addressing the question and spend our time that we have together talking about what is the church in a brief way. Author Robert Verlarde, in an article, does a good job of, in a succinct and clear way, giving us some thoughts to frame around that theologians deal with when they talk about the church. He writes this, he says, when speaking of the church, theologians often use terms such as the visible and local church as opposed to the invisible and universal church. The visible and local church is, of course, the physical churches that we see around us and around the world, as well as the members of those churches. The invisible and universal church, however, refers to all believers everywhere and is one church, united in Christ, not many physical churches. Everyone in the universal church is a true believer, but such is not necessarily the case with the visible and local churches. So in this short sermon series that we'll do before we get into our main sermon series for the year, we're going to focus mainly on the visible and local church as opposed to the invisible and universal church. Since that is the case, we need to acknowledge a good point that Mr. Velarde has raised for us in his uh, definition that he lets us know that is talked about when it comes to this. Not everyone who participates in the local and visible church is necessarily a true believer in Jesus Christ. And with this in mind, let me share how one theologian and scholar uh, from my seminary, Dr. J. Scott Harrell, defines what the, local, what the local and visible church is, not what it ought to be. I do want to make a slight adjustment or modification to his definition, and I'll explain that in detail here in just a moment. But this is what he writes and how he defines what the visible and local church is. Not what it ought to be, but what it is. He says the visible and local church is an assembly of professing believers in Jesus Christ who have been baptized, practiced the Lord's Supper, and organized to do God's will. Let me repeat that once more. The visible and local church is an assembly of professing believers in Jesus Christ who have been baptized, practiced the Lord's Supper, and organized to do God's will. Now, the part that I added there was 
the assembling of. And let me explain to you the reason why or behind that. Back in the Gospels, we have an account in which Jesus is with the disciples, and it's recorded in several accounts. Here we're looking at Matthew's account in which Jesus is uh, with his disciples, and he wants to know about how people are thinking about who he is. So he asked the disciples, what are people saying about him? Who are they identifying him as? What are they seeing or how are they thinking about him? And they give a few suggestions about the perceptions of that. Some of them have to do with prophets, Elijah, some think John the Baptist, and various other options like that. In the midst of all this, when Jesus goes on to ask them, okay, so that's what others are saying about me. What do you, my disciples who've been with me, what are you going to say about me? And Peter responds in this marvelous way, identifies Jesus correctly, and to which Jesus responds with these words in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus makes a surprising statement here after the Peter's great and wonderful confession, of course, by divine inspiration. And he says in the midst of this that he's going to build his church. And that's the word I want to focus on for a few moments here is this word translated into our Bibles as church. The original Greek word that stands behind this that we find on Jesus' lips that's most often translated in the New Testament as church, has a different meaning that some might expect. When we look at the use of the word in other passages, such as if we were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we might find this word, and if we were to translate those passages into English as we see it there, we find a different meaning than what we see here that we might not expect. And then we look at some other New Testament passages we see that is confirmed in the same way. So I want to show you that uh, in a very quick and brief way. One Old Testament passage I'll just choose to, to bring before you is Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. There we find, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembling. The word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 16 that we find is here at the end of this verse. However, it's not translated as church, but translated as assembly. Here referring to the gathering of the people of God before the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, as the law is given. We see it in other places throughout the Old Testament translated in a similar way referring to various assemblies. One case that you might look at would be Micah chapter 2, verse 5. 
We see a similar occurrence happen when we come into the New Testament and when we move to other occurrences of this word. One example in the book of Acts, the books we're focusing on for this series as our main text, we find a similar occurrence in Acts chapter 19, verse 32. Let's look there together. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. They're the same word that we find on Jesus' lips is used here in this context and, and translated again as the assembly. Here it refers to a mob that has gathered against Paul for doing what Christians do, which is share the good news about Jesus Christ. One more example. Here we find it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. But you have come to the mount to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are in, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There we find the same word again, but here translated as assembly, referring to some heavenly assembly, perhaps the church itself. In each of these examples that I've offered you, I've highlighted the fact that in other texts and other places, the word that Jesus use, uses in Matthew to say what he's going to do or what he's going to build is an assembly or a gathering. Now, Andy Stanley, I know he's a controversial figure, and I know that sometimes he has said some things that have incited all kinds of things, but I believe on talking about the definition of this word, I like the way he does it in a very simple way. I think he gets this one right. He says this, as you probably guessed, ecclesia is translated assembly in the passage above. Here he's referring to the passage we just read in Acts chapter 19 and verse 32. Why? That's what the term means. Ecclesia was not and is not a religious term. It does not mean church or house of the Lord. It certainly shouldn't be associated with a temple. The term was used widely to describe a gathering or assembling, civic gatherings or assembly of soldiers. An ecclesia was a gathering of people for a specific purpose, any specific purpose. Another writer goes on, Matt Merker, and defines it this way or says this, which adds to it, talking about this term. It's simply a term for a gathering. But when applied to the church, it carries the rich Old Testament connotations of standing together as God's chosen people. In light of what we've covered so far, what we've looked at behind what Jesus says, we must come to the understanding as it relates to the church that it is essential to the fact of what the church is, is that it is a gathering or the getting together of God's people. And it's this foundational reality that stands as the bedrock upon which all the other things that we're going to talk about are built. 
It's when the church gets together that all these other things can be done. Jesus said he's going to call together together his assembly, his gathering, and they will do his will or rather the Father's will. It's with this definition in mind of what a church is, a gathering or assembly of believers who have this shared faith in Jesus Christ. Here thinking of the visible and local church, we might say professing faith in Jesus Christ. Let's return to our main passage and read it again so we can highlight something in light of that understanding. We go back to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through verse 47, would read them with these new lenses on. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, Luke paints for us an ideal picture in light of his first book that he's already told us about because he wants us to see in a glimpse of what a community that has been uh, shaped by the presence and the work of God's Spirit should look like when it's under the full influence of the Holy Spirit. And But one of the things that we see is what becomes the normative behavior of the church, or at least these members of this community of faith. And one of the things that we notice about their normative behavior is that they meet together. Please look back at the text with me. Look at verse 44. Notice what the writer states here for us, that all who believed were together. Then again, verse 46, they attended the temple together and shared a meal. Based on verse 46, we also see that this was a repeated occurrence. The frequency here, as you see in the text there, is day by day or On a daily basis. They met on a daily basis. Of course, we know the church shifted from that, from the early church habit to later being more on a weekly basis, which we often meet in that way today. We see this pattern of normative behavior of believers getting together to form this Jesus assembly as a regular pattern throughout the New Testament. I'll offer you a few examples to show you how this plays out as we see the historical examples that testify to us that this was a regular occurrence or a regular way of behaving for believers in the life of the church. Just a few passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Just prior to this, we read these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Here, this is the assembly of the believers at that point, somewhere around 120 who had just seen seen Jesus ascend to heaven. And Jesus had told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. They've gathered together in one place. They pray and they wait for God's spirit. 
we move on in the book of Acts, we notice in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read these words. And when they prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. After facing opposition, what did the believers do? They gather together and pray. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we find these words. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Here we see that what we saw earlier in Acts chapter 2, this regular meeting here of the early Jewish community of the church, meeting there, and the emphasis is on the power of God's Spirit working among God's people through his chosen ambassadors, the apostles, but the disciples are together. When we get to the book of Corinthians, which happens years later, we find the same thing happening. Paul writes in Corinthians, although here in a form of rebuke, but still gets to the same idea. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We find that these Corinthian believers who are years after the Jewish context, now mostly in a Gentile context, are following that same pattern of getting together regularly. This is the normative behavior of the Jesus community. Those who are members of this community regularly gather together. The normal spiritual behavior for a believer in Jesus Christ is to be in regular participation in the lives of other believers and the fellowship with the collective body we refer to as the church. Now, we do have an instance of when this was not happening and when there were those who were opting out of this regular practice. And we see that the writer gives a warning in that case. For that, we turn to the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll get the context by picking up at verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to one another up, stir one another, stir up one another, excuse me, to love and good works not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer here encourages those believers who potentially might be considering because of hostility or persecution to abandon the assembly, this regular meeting of the believers in order to avoid hard times in their lives what the believer says is in these hard times, we need to encourage one another. We need to benefit one another by being in each other's lives. And the way to do that is by continually to participate in the regular meeting together of the body of Christ. That's how we do it. I think this story illustrates the point well. The story is told of a man who had gone to church for several years but suddenly stopped attending. His pastor dropped by one evening as pastor's were doing in those days, but he did it unannounced because I guess he had a good relationship with this particular member. The man didn't turn him away. 
he answered the door and he knew exactly why the pastor had stopped by. They went out and he invited the pastor in and that evening he happened to have a large fire going in his backyard so he invited the pastor to sit, sit down with them to watch the fire. They went back in the backyard around the fire and they gathered up two chairs and sat down. But it was interesting because neither man said anything, nor the pastor nor the member. After a few minutes of sitting in silence, the pastor simply picked up the tongs, reached into the fire with the tongs, pulled out one of the logs and placed it on the side of the hearth. Since the log had been removed from the fire and this community of logs that had been on fire, it slowly began to die down. The fire gave way and it began to just flicker in a few minutes before going out. They both looked at the log together and watched this occurrence happen. After some time of the cold log sitting on the side, the pastor reached over again, picked up those same tongs, grabbed that same log, and put it back into the community of logs that were on fire. And once what had been a smoldering log now began to rage with fire, just like the others. The pastor got up, said to the member, well, I need to go now, but I certainly have enjoyed our visit. The man rose to and said, I appreciate your message, Pastor. I'll see you in church on Sunday. Brothers and sisters, when we're together, there is something that happens for our faith that does not happen when we're alone. And that's exactly what this point in this story illustrates. It's better when we're together than when we're isolated. What are some of the potential implications of being a gathered people of God? As we see not only in the Old Testament, but examples in the New Testament. Now, I say potential because we cannot necessarily directly map onto our 21st century, the first century meeting and style that they did. There are some differences that we need to be aware of if you're not already aware of. First of all, some of the things, at least some historians have suggested that the church during that period, because Sunday at that time, at least in the first century, which later changed, was a work day. And so they got together after work on Sunday evenings. And it looks like from the evidence that we have that they would gather in the evenings and have a meal together. Once they had their meal and they were finished, and in that meal as part of it, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And once that was over, they would move on to this other phase, which was called uh, necessarily the, the meeting or what we would consider to be the service part from our modern terminology. And that had various elements in it. Some of what we have in our weekend worship services and some of what we find in what would most often be referred to as small groups settings. And so because there's a difference between those two kind of ideas, let me just suggest some things that may or not potentially be some of the implications of this gathered body. One of the things is we do know is that just like we see in the New Testament, the gathering of the body of Christ together was a message or sent a message to the outside world that this was a unified people. And in some ways, depending on the watching world who's around us, when we gather around Jesus together, 
In a similar way, we send a message to the world that we are, despite our diverse backgrounds, a unified people. One other thing that I've already mentioned is, in light of what the text teaches us, in light of what we see in Scripture, it seems to, to, to beg of us that there is this idea of living Christian life in isolation, doing Christianity on my own, being a, what some of us referred to in the past as a long, lone ranger Christian, is not a biblical idea or concept. Christianity is a community sport not an individual one. One of the other things we see in the text I think we might infer from this would be that the church, the body of believers, should meet together regularly. And if you are a believer, and I'll say if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when the church gathers, if you're a member of the church, that is, one who has faith in Jesus Christ, or at least professing faith in Jesus Christ, then it would make sense that you should be part of that gathering. Now I'll make a few other suggestions in light of the fact that elements are different between our setting and their setting. This also might mean more so than just coming and attending and walking out the doors that you become involved in the life of the church, at least from what we see in the one another's of the scripture as well as what was happening in their meetings. There was something going on. This might mean for you more so than just being involved on a weekend service in some kind of way, engaging beyond that in the life of other believers, either through a smaller group or a mentoring relationship. And for some, it's not that you need to be a part of that as much as God has given you enough wisdom and knowledge at this point. You have a, enough care for people and you have enough maturity in Christ where what you need to do is actually facilitate that and help to lead and guide others in their faith relationship. And in this way, you help to build up the body of Christ. Another implication I think that James makes us aware of is the fact that when we gather and stay into proper relationship with the body of Christ as we meet and gather, it has an effect upon our faith of preserving us or protecting us as God works through that means to keep us faithful to Christ. James, at the end of his letter, says this, My brothers, and you could say sisters here as well, if, anyone, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now remember here, James is writing to a community of believers. The idea is that one inside this community has began to wander, and so the community gathers around him and turns the person back, and in doing so, keeps their soul from danger. See, the community of faith is a great place for the people of God to be because we are a gathered people of God. Now, we might ask as a follow-up question in light of the fact that we are a gathered people, where should we gather at? In our passage, we see a couple examples here in the text. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 46, you'll notice there that there are two locations given in verse 46. In the text, if you have your Bibles open, it'll say, the temple and in homes. If we do a quick survey of the New Testament, we'll realize that most of, most of the gatherings happen in, in homes, but not always. 
uh, because as you remember, just because of the way church history plays out, church buildings did not really exist until some centuries later. Let me give you a quick snapshot as I run through a quick few verses uh, of the Bible to show you how this plays out. So in Acts 19, chapter 9, we find that Paul, uh, after going to synagogues and the disciples and their unwelcome to synagogue, no longer meet there, but he, I guess, rents out the hall of Tyrannus where he meets and teaches the disciples there. So they gather in the hall of Tyrannus. If we just start walking through Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, which we mentioned, they broke bread in their homes and they met in the temple. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it was from house to house. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, from house to house. Acts chapter 10, verse 22, in Cornelius' home. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, they gathered and prayed in Mary's house. In Acts chapter 16, verse 40, in Lydia's home. In Acts chapter 18, verse 7, in Titius Justice's home. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, from house to house. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 through 16, 19, we find that they met in Priscilla and Aquila's home. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, in Nympha's house. Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the church that meets in Philemon's house. Now, you'll notice that they meet in the temple and in the, 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 um, the place, the hall of Tyrannus, but most of the occurrences we see in the New Testament happen in people's homes. Now, does this mean what the Bible is saying, that the only proper place for the church to meet is in the believer's home? If that's the case, we shouldn't be in this building tonight. We should be in homes. I think a second century Christian would be a good person to ask. Historian Dr. Alakin records the remarks of Justin Martyr when asked about where the church meet, and I think he says something that gives us some insight into how we ought to understand this. During the second century, Christians continued to meet in private houses, but in answer to the question of the urban prefect of Rome, Justin tells him that Christians hold assemblies in several places in Rome. This is what Justin said, wherever it is each one's preference and opportunity. The believers used what means were available to them to meet and gather. And during this period, because of their stance within the Roman Empire, they used what was readily available to them, which happened to be their homes. Nothing spiritual or great about it. It's just that they use the spaces available to them. I think that's the point. They use what they had available. That means that churches have the freedom to meet in different places. When we meet outside on a Saturday, I don't think it's unholy, unbiblical when we have church, when we gather together as believers to worship God outside. I think that's just fine. Churches can meet in schools. We started off at Rutherford Elementary. Churches can meet in homes, if that is the case, on some occasions. When my dad first planted, our, planted his church that he pastors now, I remember us, we started off the journey in our home, in our living room, because we were only about 12 to 13 people that made up the church at that time. As the church began to grow, of course, we outgrew the living room, so we couldn't keep putting chairs in the living room because we didn't have any more space. So at that point... We put, collected our money and pooled it together, and we rented a space, and there we began to meet each weekend. And when we outgrew that space, then as a result of that, we decided to purchase an older building from a church that was building a new, larger facility, so we purchased their older facility, and that's where the church moved to. In all these phases of the church, we occupied different spaces. I don't think any of that was unbiblical. I think the church, by what we see in Scripture, has freedom to meet where, wherever is available to meet the needs of that local assembly of believers. 
Now, someone might ask, well, then what is my motivation for being a part of this assembly of believers when it gathers together? I believe the preceding verses of chapter 10 of Hebrews that we read, which was really all one thought together, gives us the answer to what ought to be our motivation for gathering with other believers on a regular basis. Here we have established in our society and culture a weekly basis. Let me go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and I'll show it to you. We find the words there, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to a tr draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there's a lot in these verses, but the point that I want to get across here ultimately is that he ties later to this idea of us coming together, which is all one thought that's been kind of tied together there, is this idea that he opens up with the reason that we ought to be driven together is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus gave his life for us, and in doing that, by paying for our sins, he opened up the way for us to have access to God. And because he's opened up the way for us to have access and by his resurrection, he now sits as our high priest to make intercession for us. We ought to together draw close to God. And we do that when we gather together as the people of God. If you were here on last Friday evening as we did our Good Friday message, one of the things you'll remember from that message was the fact that Jesus died to create a new family or community of people for God, as we see attested to in the book of the Revelation. Now, how do believers gather in the first century? How, how do they gather together? Well, the believers had to gather in person. And some of that is by just the reality of time. Believers did not have the technology that we have today that was afforded to them. I don't know if there was a pandemic going on at the time. And to be honest, I cannot say what the apostles would say today if they had the same technology that we have today. But I do know that they probably would put it to use. One writer put it this way. Scanning the list of the Bible's one another commands in our technological age should spark gratitude in our hearts. For even in a time of isolation, we can carry out many of the aspects of these commands. It is possible, thank God, to love from a distance. Now, I would say technology should never be a permanent replacement for the physical gathering of people, of God's people. There are certain things that we cannot do as a body apart from one another. To give you just two quick examples would be the gathered practice of which is called upon the church to do, which is to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which, of course, uh, the believers had seemed to do, at least in the first century, on a regular weekly basis as they shared a meal together to open up their time. But also, we could not practice the offering hospitality to one another, of course, without grumbling that Peter talks about in First Peter verse 4 and 9 without some type of physical gathering. So if for reasons of health or reasons of personal choice or putting others at risk, a person chooses not to for certain reasons for a period of time, not to intend 
uh, in-person gatherings or are able to do that, I would encourage them to use the means of technology that God has blessed man with in this age to still gather in some sense with other believers regularly. We do see the apostles, when they were unable to be with other believers, used what was available to them and afforded to them in the time. And what did they use? What we have right here. They wrote letters. Now, if your situation changes in the future or that person's changes, I would encourage them to reconnect with the church in their active presence in the life of the community of the believers. Now, what's the purpose of when we get together, what ought we to be doing? Well, we'll answer that in the weeks coming, so I won't spoil that tonight. Let me conclude with this story shared by one minister as she uh, was addressing a congregation and she, well, a speech, and she shared this story about one of her students. Professor Jackson said that she had received a call from a student late one evening after a worship service. She said he was really excited on the other end of the phone, and she said that he had to really speak with her, and she had to kind of slow him down. And he said to her, well, Mother Kim, uh, this strange thing happened to me today. After worship tonight, I was riding the train back to my apartment when this woman sat, not, sat, sat down next to me. I had my earbuds in, so I wasn't really paying attention to her, but she tapped me to get my attention. And Professor Jackson said, well, what happened? When the lady tapped him, the lady said to him, son, you smell like church. You smell like church. Now, I don't know if she was thinking of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about us having the aroma of Christ. Maybe that's what she was thinking of and applying it in a different way than we might apply it. But that's maybe what she was thinking of. But there is a reality that when we come to know God, we come to put our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that there is something different about us that lingers in the atmosphere and how we behave and how we exude uh, who we are to those around us. To borrow the words of the woman, we smell like church. Or as Paul put it, we smell like Christ. She went on to ask what the lady said after that, that evening on the phone as she talked to her student. She said, well, what happened next? The lady went on to say, after she began to cry, thank you, because I haven't been to church in a long time. Brothers and sisters, if I were to ask you tonight, and if someone were to sitting next to you on a train, would you smell like church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and we realize, oh Lord, we as a people are your people who have been called out of the world to belong to you. But not individually, Lord, but collectively as a people. Now, we do have individual relationships with you, but you've called us into a family, into a community. And there are many images that we see throughout the New Testament that describe the church, which we didn't discuss tonight for the sake of time. One image is the body of Christ that we are, Paul said, members of one another. Lord, I pray that we will remember this as we continue to think about the importance of us as believers gathering together. This is an important aspect because we are an assembly of Jesus Christ, the gathering of Jesus Christ. And as one writer put it, in us gathering together, 
this is one of the things that government, some government officials fear because we are an embassy of the kingdom of God in a visible way when we gather and proclaim that there is no other Lord but Jesus. We thank you for the freedom for us to be able to gather in this way. And we thank you for the joy of that. May we remember that, Lord, in the moments when we are weary, discouraged. May we like that log, Lord. Maybe we've been out of the fire. When we gather with other believers, Lord, would you put us back in the fire so that our passion, our zeal is rekindled. We ask that you work in our lives, Lord, and keep us in close relationship with the community of faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand with us? We'll sing one final song. We'll dismiss you just briefly.